0: Hey listeners, Blair here. Thank you again for tuning in for another episode of Technology Innovation, a part of the Maintenance Disrupted series. On this week's podcast, this is a really interesting topic to me and I really enjoyed the conversation I had with the the fellows at Falconry. On this episode, we discuss remaining useful life, this mystic unicorn in the sky of the idea of being able to predict when our equipment is going to fail with some level of accuracy. Now this really came out of a previous podcast that we posted on LinkedIn. A lot of discussion was happening around Remaining Useful Life. So we thought we'd dig a little deeper into Remaining Useful Life or what um, Falcon recalls the Event Horizon estimation. and it's really talking about can we predict events happening in the future and what are the some of the challenges with that. We bring analogies into Um, driving a car with miles to empty or when to change your oil, some of the challenges with that, what happens when you have too many sensors, sensors start to drift and things like that. So if you're looking at um, using machine learning or trying to predict remaining useful life or any event in the future, I would highly recommend you continue to listen to this podcast. I hope you really enjoy this and please leave some comments on LinkedIn or on our um, podcast feeds. We do appreciate the feedback. Thank you and I hope you enjoy. Welcome everybody. Welcome back to another episode of maintenance disrupted. Today we are on the podcast to talk about remaining useful life, estimating remaining useful life. Um, the reason I brought these two gentlemen on is we had a podcast recently where we, we touched at a very high level, um, the concept of remaining useful life, um, kind of what is it, um, how to use it if it's working in this, in our industry in particular. And, um, Nikunj, who was, who was actually commented, I, I've I've known him for a while. I've known Falconry for a while, and I know what they're doing with Remaining Useful Life. So we got them on the podcast today to talk a little more about Remaining Useful Life and dive deeper into it. So, Nikunj, Dan, welcome to uh, Maintenance Disrupted.
1: Thanks, yeah, man. it's great to have this opportunity. Thanks, great.
0: Man. And uh, I, I do appreciate it. For, we are recording this episode the day after Christmas, so I appreciate you guys taking uh, taking time in the, in the morning, my afternoon and your morning. So let's just get into it. Remaining useful life or time to failure has been around for a long, long time. We're trying to estimate this. this I've always called it the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail, if we can get to a precise science when we know precisely when and how our assets are going to fail. Um, that would be the golden age of, of kind of maintenance. So in your guys' opinions, you've obviously developed a, a product solution around it. What has worked in the past, and what are some of the challenges that have been happening with estimating remaining useful life?
1: Yeah, well, if you think about it, an odometer, it is one of the simplest RUL or TTF estimator. And people have used that to determine how many more miles they've got to go before they have to oil change the oil in their cars, right? Right. Um, And autometer-based methods have actually been used even in generators and turbines, for example. Um, There are more sophisticated methods, for example, that rely on specific sensor readings and a regression plot on the reading of uh, that sensor to assess how deep into the useful life are we. A third method that has often been used is a calibration run to compare the uh, specific sequence of actions done in a calibration uh, to what is happening today, and using that difference as a way to estimate what is the state of the system and what is the amount of life that is left. Unfortunately, though, that those three methods are good only for about 18% of the problems that are encountered in reliability in practical life. And that is because most behaviors that people have to deal with uh, cannot be easily mapped to one of these simple methods. There are too many different operating behaviors, the operating profile of those systems changes as a result of maintenance and life of, of the asset. Uh, so many different behaviors have uh, been altered that it is no longer possible to use those methods to estimate how much life was left. And so we believe that we have already excavated as much buried treasure as there was with the existing methods on RUL and TTF,
0: right? I think that was a, a great metaphor there to put it. I never thought of that yeah. of the the oil change model, right? Of of yeah. And 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 I'll, I'll speak from my personal belief. I I don't think I've I've gone a long distance over that zero uh, percent remaining of your oil <laughs> life left with with a certain level of confidence. Knowing uh, my background is instrumentation, so knowing sensors, right? And it, I think it's right. the same analogy would probably work for the um, miles to empty on your Correct. gas, right? Like I've, I've I'm not getting free gas once i hit zero miles to empty right <laughs> i'm not somehow producing energy miraculously it's just the, the is obviously there's a safety factor built in and things like that um, so that, that's very interesting to to hear so I, I think what i took away is is you know those those techniques that you mentioned they, they work for certain applications but you mentioned about 18 percent of that those three applications cover about 18 percent of
1: Yeah, that's a number that ARC put out in a research report some time ago asking why we have not yet uh, been able to address the majority of needs of uh, maintenance. Uh, And one of the things they said was that the behaviors in production are so diverse that the standard methods uh, for estimating any type of usefulness of reliability methods um, is sort of limited to that 18%. Everything after that, we haven't been able to predict with the existing simple methods. So it's much more complex.
2: Right. Yeah, I think even even the, you know, The remaining miles to oil or the the remaining miles of gasoline has has changed recently. So, you know, like we got our first electric car recently and I discovered that the, you know, how many miles you have left in an electric car is significantly less reliable than it was on any of our traditional (laughs) cars. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, So I think the the listeners
0: (laughs) can't see the grin on your face here. Yeah. So we don't have to mention names, but I didn't expect that for some reason. I thought it would be more accurate.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, no, it's, no, not. it's significantly is <laughs> less accurate. So like the one we have, you know. Is that right? Yeah, you can yeah. delete the manufacturer if you need to, but we, we got one of the, the Chevy Bolt. Yeah. And in the forums, they actually call it the the mystery meter or something like that. Oh, right? I love because it. It's, because a little bit, because it's just more factors involved. You know, the yeah. the electricity is running the heating systems and the cooling systems and the car, and it mm-hmm. depends on hills. And, you know, like the efficiency isn't as stable and you know it's you can't predict the regeneration and some of those things it's just a lot more complicated there's
0: more sensors yeah. more
2: variables well
0: that's yeah. right I can, I can only imagine yeah. as oh, go ahead Dickens.
1: i have had to drive on zero several times and that's because it's not a linear degradation even though your driving is very constant <clears throat> the algorithms tend to also be more conservative and give you warning And they think that the only way really to warn you is that that number, and they Mm -hmm. may have some more likes left, but they can't predict in a reliable enough manner. So they will close off the reliability window or the predictability window much sooner, because everything after that is unpredictable.
0: Isn't that okay? I love that. Close out the predictability window. So you're saying there's there's this window of opportunity or opportunity we have to predict it, but once it gets too too close, it's just hey, we're best guess at this point. We're throwing a dart at the dartboard. Yeah. Oh, exactly. interesting! It, and I'm glad you brought that up because I actually wrote down a note here to talk about degradation. Because when we think about an asset, it is very much not linear. There's nothing linear about a failure, right? Yep. It, it <coughs> you know, very rarely. And that, that's what you know. If we go back to reliability fundamentals, that's what you know. Nolan and Heaps back in the late '60s told us what RCM is. Things fail typically, you know, infant mortality and in at ra- random right? And we know Mm -hmm. that, right? There's very few, there are some that fail time-based and things like that. And I think that's why our industry in particular, and I'm saying ours is maintenance and reliability. So interested in this remaining useful life because we operate in a very non-linear world.
1: Yeah. And actually I would say that the randomness can be sort of explained in two different ways. One is sudden and it is operator induced uh, or potentially it is environmentally caused. And the other is incipient damage that degrades over time. And the randomness, in some cases, can be explained by human behavior itself not being predictable or business need not being predictable. And in other cases, it can be explained by, hey, it is not as simple as one variable. It's much more complex than that. And anything that we cannot explain in a very simple way, you know, we have a tendency to think that it may be difficult to predict and possibly random. Mm-hmm. That's
0: so true. I think it is. Now. Dan, I'll just, you're, you're the uh, the CTO at, at Falconer. You've worked on a lot of enterprise software, a lot of data. I'll throw a question out to you. I'm just curious if you know if you could go back and and build your own miles to empty on on that electric car. What what would you do differently, or what would you suggest to to the manufacturer? <laughs>
2: uh, I actually don't know enough about how it works to suggest anything to them. Other than you know the one question is like how accurate does it need to be to put it in the car Mm -hmm. and i think that's the you know like they're i would think they're right on the borderline of that right so like right you know know, forum members are maybe a little bit extreme in their opinions you know so like the fact that they're calling it the mystery meter doesn't mean no one can rely on it but (laughs) (laughs) but it clearly could be improved right so you know i think that's one of those first questions right Is like what are your goals for that project right how accurate does that meter need to be and you know what's the what's the upside of being conservative, you know, versus the downside of stranding people on a mountaintop somewhere. Well, that's, and that's exactly (laughs) it. So there's, there's
0: two things I want to address there, Dan, as you answered that question, which I think was, (laughs) it was not staged and it was phenomenal. The first one is you don't know enough about it. Right. And that's where people are coming in thinking, you know, remaining useful life. Someone that doesn't understand the equipment, the operations can just plug in a remaining useful life meter, if you will, and and try to get that, which I don't think is going to happen. And, 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 you know, the, the second part was, you know, you called it what are your goals or what is your output is and that's something, you know, in this space of, of machine learning and analytics, I've had to learn, and I'm still learning is when is good, good enough. Right, because if you're driving that car through Death Valley, right, then that's a different yeah. problem with all your kids in it than you are just bombing through the yep. streets to go to the grocery store, right. So context yeah. matters in this space, right. So Mystery Meter, you're okay, you're going to get groceries, I'm okay, right middle of nowhere. I'm not okay with a mystery meter. Right.
2: Yeah. Yep. And if it, if it drops 30%, you know, from one day to the next, just because the temperature changed, you know, it's like that's that's, right. that's not going to make me happy. That's right.
0: That's right. So Nikenshi, the, the CEO and founder of, of uh, Falconry, um, you've obviously been working on this remaining useful life, um, time to failure. And, you know, you, you actually piped up, in, in the, the chat we had on Maintenance Disrupted about remaining useful life. And that's how we got this podcast going because I'm just fascinated by this. So what are you doing at, at Falconry to, to, to work with customers to help determine that remaining useful life?
1: As if we didn't have enough terms, Falconry decided to invent a new one. We called it the Event Horizon Estimation. And we call it okay, Event so Horizon. Event because... Horizon Estimation. Okay, that's right. Uh, That's because there is an event out in the future. It could be a failure event, or an out of fuel event, or a reactor criticality event, or potentially a uh, exhaustion of the uh, consumption or the consumable. And these are all different events into the future. Uh, So we call it the event horizon estimate because we want to know how much time there is to that event. Uh, The other thing I want to say is that I've been in this space now for 11 years, and one of the things I realized was that RUL, while it was a very valuable uh, mathematical quantity, Mm -hmm. um, it was one that was not reliably producible. And many have looked at this as a regression problem in general with equipment reliability, uh, whether they put up a health score or whether they give us an estimate of time left and so on. And the one thing we did uh, that I think was a little contrarian was say that, look, the signature of a system's behavior as recorded in its instrumentation data will change depending on whatever is being operated in the equipment at the time, whether it's the product quality or the raw materials or the condition and the health of the system. So you know, our approach has been, let's first understand the state of the system as seen in its behavioral pattern. And then let's use that behavioral pattern Mm -hmm. to basically estimate what is going to happen in the future. And there is a certain uh, sort of a parallel, if you might, to using a single sensor to estimate what is the remaining life through a regression curve. But the same- Go ahead. But the same can mean. happen also with a, a multitude of sensors. In the event that the behavior cannot be seen in one sensor alone, perhaps we can see that in the combination of sensors and a regression curve that can be built on top of that behavior. So um, and at Falconry, we've basically built it in two stages. First is let's understand the sequence of patterns that emerges and then let's understand how to estimate time from the sequence of patterns. And that's uh, an area where Falconry is rather unique because it is a dynamic method. It doesn't matter whether it's one sensor or multiple. It doesn't matter whether you go through a very a dynamic operating profile or a static one. And it doesn't matter whether it's about the remaining useful life or a time to failure. There can be any future event that there is a precursor event to and Falconry can actually differentiate both of them.
2: Yeah, in a a way we got dragged into this space. Um, Like we, I would say we weren't enthusiastic about (laughs) predicting a time and Mm -hmm. it wasn't, you know, we just didn't think it was tractable. Um, so, you know, is that, is that because
0: you didn't think you could have confidence in that number or just think it wasn't valuable or.
2: Uh, we didn't think it it existed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That, that like especially, you know, the dynamic aspects of especially complicated systems. We just didn't think that any prediction of that time was really possible. Um, what we did think and what I think our, our intuition around the data was, was that at some point before a failure, the system will start looking different than it than it looks normally. Sure. You know, and so what we started with was trying to build a system that can just detect those differences um, and, and the periods when that's different. And then what we found was that people reliably found those signatures, the, the patterns that happen, you know, either right before failure or more often before failure than not before failure um and even then we're just looking at the presence of patterns right so we didn't we didn't really have a way you know we, we didn't have an you know a sense that that could be turned into a prediction of remaining useful life we knew it was a prediction of failure but it wasn't a time prediction it was just right. a, um, it was just a signature um so it actually took a you know a, a not so gentle push from one of our customers um to to get us to look at okay i'm glad they did yeah yeah can we really put a time estimate on that or not um and so that became a little bit interesting you know the, the other thing that made us nervous about that you know having looked at failure prediction for a long time not in the in the time to failure sense but just in the can you predict it at all sense was um the realization that failure is not one thing um you know so um you know I, just, I think most people intuitively understand you know when you're not talking about time to failure that there's more ways to fail than one
0: well um, and but- i think well i think that i think most people when they when they talk about in theory they think that but when you go out into and and what happens in theory to what happens in the marketplace is two different things right and Nikunj mentioned already the the idea of um you know asset health i think that's a big misnomer in our industry that you can measure the health of all the individual failure modes and components of a piece of equipment and it's no different than i think of that remaining useful life right
2: yeah and then you know the so there were a couple of those things that threw us so one was customers give us data sets you know and said hey can you predict all of these failures and we'd go back and like you know we found half of them or something and be like why didn't you find these others and we're like well you know tell us about these others and they would you know we'd go and look at the failure reasons, you know, that they had in their lists and it would include sabotage and act of God and flood <laughs> you know, and electric. That's right. right. Like, and and act of God is a real thing. Like it's a, it's
0: like yeah. written insurance policies and all that kind of stuff, right? Like it's, yeah, a, no, and it's it, was, legitimate... it
2: was a significant chunk of, you know, some of those operations were, were act of God failures and we're like, well, right. Right, you know, on what basis did you think we should have predicted? Yeah. That?
0: Predict <laughs> a light, a lightning strike or,
2: yeah, yeah. Those types so so that was one occurrence was like well you know how can we predict it if we don't know what it is right and so that sort of sent us back to the drawing board and like okay well let's see you know can we differentiate between the different kinds of failures even um and looking at that you know then we discovered that failure records are terrible also um, <laughs> they so of most cases, absolutely yeah. are <laughs> um so you know we found you know simple things that throw off the math right which is that the failure is recorded when the system is is replaced into operation it's not of when it, it actually happens. happened. yeah um, absolutely and that you know that certainly throws off the math a lot um because you know that period in between is all kinds of random things happening um and so you know but those things got us thinking about hey well if if it's really in the data you know we shouldn't have to trust humans for all of these things right so a system that can tell you how long you have until failure should be able to tell you if you've done maintenance, right? It's like, you know, if you do maintenance, you expect it to have an impact. Um, and you actually expect to avoid the failure. So anything that actually has a real, you know, you know, my getting back to our car example, right. If I fill it back up with gas, the meter's going up. Right. Um, and I didn't have to get to the failure. Um, so that was one of the other things that, you know, had, had been kind of gnawing at us was, you know, we're looking at systems that, that don't fail, right. Or run forever. They're not all disposable or or Mm -hmm. consumable assets, right. It's not just like a bearing and it. Right. Multi-million dollar assets. Right. Yeah. It's a system that's been running for 30 years. Right. And, you know, from in one sense it's never failed because it's still running. Right. And in others it's continually failing in some way because you know, it's, it's always a a work in progress.
0: Right. So when I, when I look at that, you know, you mentioned, so really for this, um, Event horizon estimation. estimation. Do you short format it as EHE or you call it the full That's thing every right. time? Yep. EHE. That's right. Okay. Um <laughs> so it looks like you're really doing your you you know, for lack of better terms, you're you're learning that unique signature. Um, so you're detecting um, the um, to degree of of which it is not that signature. To some level, and then you're doing your prediction on that. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, you can almost say that. Yeah, you can almost say that we have to first find the P point Mm -hmm. before we can estimate the life or the interval from P to F. And so that P point is a pattern, and then there are probably patterns between the P point and the F point. Some of which are intervention events like lubrication, Mm -hmm. and others are uh, just the production activity that were going on and maybe changes to that. And so the P to F. We have to estimate what is the uh, deterioration state as seen in the P points data. And then we have to assess what is the uh, deterioration profile like between the P point and some F point. And that F is not absolute failure. It is basically where somebody says, "Hey, I've had enough, we're gonna redo this.
0: So one of the big challenges that I've seen, you guys mentioned it is, you know, obviously about getting this labeled data, right? Everyone says, oh, manufacturing or, you know, industry has all this great data and we do, but typically it's in silos, it's not labeled. So one of the big challenges that always comes up is in order to predict time to failure or remaining useful life, right? Or I guess any event in the future, you need a data set that has that failure in it in order to predict it so do i need to have seen that failure in historical data in order to use or predict that you, that that happening again essentially
2: so maybe there's two answers for that so one on the the record of historical failures um, you know like we we've you know from the beginning we've known that the labels are unreliable and probably don't exist most of the time. So Falconry has always sort of been about a, an interactive supervision um, at best. And it's always been about detecting and recognizing patterns that happen infrequently. So we have a, a lot of systems where maybe one of the things fails every couple of years or maybe once or twice a year. So you you just don't, you know, you don't have a history. Like no one could come up with a history. Um, so for those things, you know, there, there's the one aspect of like, can you identify the failures reliably without labels? Um, and that's actually pretty easy for the machine to do because usually when something fails, it's pretty obvious and you right. can pick out the failures. So you can you can automate the process of generating failure labels for, lab, for failures that happen frequently. Um, in terms of predicting the time to an event, yeah, you have to have seen at least one of that event. Um, and that's where you get back into this confidence question, right? Which is, mm-hmm. okay, how, you know how reliable do you think a, a failure prediction model that's based on one failure ever um, is going to be? Um, so we actually have you know this expanded idea of the confusion matrix, right? Which includes um, you know h- how many examples have you seen of this thing before? How you know is the next failure you see actually the same failure or not? You know if the system predicts a failure and you know, the system doesn't actually go down. Does that mean that the failure it was predicted didn't happen? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or or does it mean that it just wasn't detected in the way you expected to detect it? Um, So, yeah, so the, you know, what it comes down to for all of the individual customers and their use cases is this is more information, right? right? So, so what we try to expose is, you know, here's the model, it's probably more information than no model, right? And if you've seen one of these failures, um, you know, we know historically this system is pretty good at identifying a second example of this thing based on the first example. Um, and so, you know, you, you do have, you have a bunch of bits of information that you didn't have before, right? So one is just, the, you know, we saw the condition again, um, and we're, you know, however sure the model thinks it is. So it's like the model internals are exposed in terms of, you know, does the model think it's real good or not? Um, but after that, it comes down to okay, well, you know, do you expect to have ten minutes of notice before this failure, or do you expect to have you know a month notice before the failure? And you know, if we're off by a week in that estimate, is that good enough? Because right. all you need to do was move the maintenance window a little mm-hmm. bit, um, or or is it not? And that ends up being you know a sort of personal decision at every level, right? That's right. That's right. I think you said it good. Yeah. Is, it,
0: is the 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 probability. Of this model, having more information better than no model at all. That right there, I think is is the value statement. There, can you make it a little bit better an in informed decision?
1: And Blair, I would also say that um, if we focus on just one problem, our results will tend to be unreliable enough for us to have no interest in it. Mm-hmm. But if you uh, select a sufficient variety of problems, and and by variety, you know it could be in one plant. Uh, multiple choke points, perhaps, uh, not necessarily in completely different industries, then that gives us the awareness of how this behavior works and manifests, so that we can get the most out of it. At the end of the day, if your systems are well-instrumented, and you know this as well as anybody does, uh, that there isn't a whole lot more instrumentation that will help, right. whether it is specialized sensors, inspection mechanisms. um Then it becomes more a question of can I exploit the data and the instrumentation I already have? And we've seen people become quite good over a period of a few months, both in interpreting the early warning signs and now with this event horizon estimation, adjusting their schedule so that they're able to take advantage of the life uh, awareness they have now, either to delay something or to interact with the system to increase that time. Right. And I think that second part is important because realize that just estimating the life is not interesting, especially for those people who think that this is just a rundown timer. Right. They want to see it being intelligent. This is one of the key pieces of feedback the customer that Dan was referring to gave us that don't just run a, a timer or sort of a countdown from the point you think there is P. You have to be able to understand that we are either lubricating it or changing the load profile, and that therefore we have more time, or perhaps we have less. And intelligence is what it eventually comes down to, is people have to feel like this thing is intelligent. If I do something, the number changes. And that gamification makes the other party interested enough to want to engage with it in a useful way.
0: I think, yeah, that was well said. And I like the word gamification in there, because that's just actually what it is. And that that's what I was going to ask you is, obviously the remaining useful life or, or some, any kind of um, negatively impact event horizon so anything that's mm-hmm. going to you know uh, mess up anything from a quality operations efficiency aspect you're trying to estimate that what you're trying to do is it's just no different than if, if you're you know miles to empty is going to be zero soon you, your probably next step would be to find a gas station or i guess in your case dan a plug right um is, is to start doing that so ideally in the ideal world you should never get to prove out the model of remaining useful ice because you've done stuff to intervene to essentially right. extend that properly maintain right. it and then put it back right
2: yeah and that was like one of the big surprises and maybe light bulb moments when we first started seeing the models work in here was that um There were a bunch of cases where we had no maintenance records or things like that, but the model was suddenly changing its mind about, you know, how healthy it thought the system was Um, and suddenly like spikes in the model, right? Um, And, you know, we looked at that we're like, hmm, you know, there's some kind of shadow maintenance record this thing is generating for us. And that's probably, you know, the the remaining time is a useful thing, right? But, you know, without knowing time to what and what's the corresponding action... And if I intervene, has it helped, right? Um, you know, the utility of just that number isn't isn't that high. But we started looking at this thing and saying, hey, you know, if we actually see these these regions where the health status has changed, that gives us a good idea of where to go back and look at the data and see, you know, which part of the data changed, right? Like, Right. Did the health indication change because of some change in one of the sensors around the part of the system that was maintained, or you know was it a completely you know uncorrelated uh, change in some other part of the system? Right. So I think you know I
0: think you know what you guys are saying is you know in, and whoever this customer is, uh, thank you for pushing Valkyrie in this way um, because I think you know you said you know customers really want to see you know increased intelligence. Right. And w- the way I would take this is this um, estimated horizon um, is, is not an out of the box solution, right? You can't just say, Hey, I have this type of asset, plug it in and you get a remaining useful life out of it. Right. There's it's, it's a, it's a process it's learning, but not only is it, and I say it as the model, I always say it, but um, the, operators the maintenance people have to learn alongside with it right
1: yeah i think the this is an organizational learning right prediction is one of those challenges Mm. Uh, for example if you think about it agriculture was not a highly predicted uh, economical or economic sector and now it is the whole economy knows how to use those predictions whether it is weather whether it's prices whether it's logistics and labor and the same way i think in maintenance People have been trained on automators and um, sort of their maintenance schedules proposed by the vendor of the equipment. But here we are trying to propose a way to perform intervention on an individual asset by asset basis, taking into account the production that takes place in that asset. And so it does require the organization to adapt to it. The customer that we are talking about, they operate a very large steel plant um, and they are one of worlds uh, 30 largest steel makers. And their maintenance teams were very, very, very clear at the beginning. If you tell me that this is going to fail, but I don't know when, then I don't have a way to prioritize because I want to keep the, main, the, the production going. I cannot intervene without a reason. And I need to prioritize differently. So if you want to change my priorities, tell me time. And then it is for them, a vehicle to uh, justify a intervention. And they want to be right about it, but they are willing to take some chances as they learn. And so sometimes they will have a prediction but would not act on it just to prove that they knew and they did not intervene. And at other times they will Mm. intervene to prove that the intervention has extended. And so, by the way, this is another very important part. Dan and I can do all of the intelligent things we want to, but at the end of the day, it's a maintenance team or the reliability team that is the one that's really producing value. Because they need to know how to measure that benefit and how to prove it to their finance teams that there is indeed a benefit.
0: Right. You, I think you've nailed it, uh, bringing that ROI, the other stakeholders um, into, into the equation. Uh, so, you know, we, we keep on we talking about it, um, you know, and you gave that uh, example of this, this steel company, you know, using the time horizon to help prioritize what they did. I think if I understood that correctly, they would strategically let some assets continue to fail without intervening just to check the validity of that um, right. that estimate, which is which is good, that's, that's that's devious. That's something I would do, I like it, right? Do one yeah. maintenance. And at, do other one...
1: Times, and at other times they would <clears throat> run an inspection, like an ultrasonic measurement to assess right. whether there is indeed deterioration that lead to failure. Uh, so I think they would basically pit one method against another. Right. And, and that increases right. their confidence.
0: Absolutely. So confidence is something that, you know, on the nano precise, um, episode, we were talking about that, which, which really got into this remaining use of life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything that I've write on remaining useful life or time to failure, or estimating that time to failure, there's always a confidence interval or calculation that's coming with it. Is that, is that true when you start looking at the EHE on your side? Is there some kind of confidence level from a mathematical point of view or statistics point of view that you get with the the time horizon
2: there is yeah um and we, we go back and forth about you know whether it's more easily consumed to express as a as a window or as a confidence level or score okay. um so right. at the moment we have it as a confidence score but it's i mean it is interchangeable with a with a time window Right, um, but the, so, the time window what for some people was harder to understand, right? Because you, you, I mean, just thinking in yeah, terms of, of that's right. in terms of, of ranges and probabilities is is just difficult for anyone because you know it is,
0: yeah. Often years. we want, yeah, we want, yeah, that's right. We have to become multivariate at that point, right? <laughs> but the way the way I've heard it, and maybe it's because I've I just been in the data side too long, but to me, that's the way to go. Is the is the window when you know what it? It's almost. Inversing it is—is is, you know what's my probability of failing within this time window versus you know looking too far out. Like, is it going to snow next Christmas?
2: Yeah, um, and we, right. we talked a little bit about you know some of the challenges that like it's it's never just a straight linear regression on any kind of features you build. That it um, if, if
0: it was, reverse. we would we would have done it in Excel, right? Yeah.
2: Like... <laughs> so, so there's some you know there's years. a mixture of things that have actual trends and things that accumulate, and it's like the accumulation of damage is the trend, you know. And we don't, you know, because here we have to phrase it in terms of a time we can't cheat like on your car right like your car doesn't tell you how long until you have to get gas, it tells you how many miles right. Um, Because they don't know if you're driving or not driving. That's right. Yeah. So it's kind of the same Mm -hmm. in this space right so the I think one of the one of the uses of the confidence score is that it can actually tell you you know this is one of those cases where you know it's the not driving case for your system right now we're we're not super confident in our number or in any changes to our number you know and if the system gets back into a state you know where we we see the the trendy part of the data pick up again our confidence improves and we're like oh now we know
1: yeah i think the i think humility is a very big part of this prediction process we have to be able to tell people what we don't know And the confidence core or confidence window um, also suffers from probably that hubris that we know. Um, And I think people are smart. I mean, the maintenance teams that are managing these kinds of rollouts in a regional manner, not just in an individual plant, they know how to work with it. All they need to know is that this is a reliable method and that confidence can fluctuate and that there are other parameters that can help them such as why is it high or why is it low and which type of failure are we likely to see see these are the things that matter even more than the confidence window and sometimes we try to narrow things down to like a number and that's when we get into trouble
2: yeah it's kind of a problem with the name too right like we always call it a confidence score because that's what people ask for but you know the the thing that, that kind of papers over is that it's not the confidence in the person receiving that score right like that person's confidence is only based on their own experience and right. you know <laughs> what happened in the past right all it is is the models telling it you know what what it thinks right it's not you know it's not right. intended to be your confidence in that it's number no, it's the system's confidence, confidence. And, you know it's yeah. deleted by how much you trust the system
0: right so there's other weighting facts yeah That that's that's very good and I, I i want to address the fact this has been a very natural open conversation you said things you know um that shook me just in a in a typical vendor approach right like you know but i think you know by saying you know bring a little humidity tell people what we don't know because people think that this type of technology is going to answer all their questions right and i shouldn't say in most people because it's not true a lot of people cut through the, the bs pretty quick and say there's no way right but i think that's right. really good is because is if end of the day you're enabling people to make a better informed decision right whether that's you know i'll throw Weighted factors here: one percent better decision, or you have a little more confidence in making that decision, or a lot more, but you're still enabling people to make probably faster, um, more data-driven decisions. Right?
1: Okay.
2: Yeah, and sometimes that that also means identifying the relevant data, which is something we can't do, also, right? So you know, right. sort of back to the like, could you predict this failure? you know, if the failure was a wrench getting stuffed into the machine. <laughs> that's right. The machine sensors aren't helpful for that, right? right? You need the you need the sensor on the human and the wrench. You know, that well that's that exactly point. it. You can yeah. have that expectation.
0: <laughs> well I did have a similar I'll go down my path though we used to do a lot of work at a water treatment facility. And um somehow through the the water treatment facility a two by four ended up into the system and went into the actually into oh. the into the blades of the pot. Right. And then they're like I was doing we were doing vibration service at the time like hey why didn't you pick this up? Right. Well, that's a pretty acute failure there, isn't it? Right. When we took a measurement, there was no two by four. When we came back, there was a two by four. Right. So that's, (laughs) um, that's, that's very interesting. So there's, there's one question that's on my mind and this might stem into another podcast. We don't have to go too far into it, but just with my automation instrumentation background, thousands and thousands of sensors out there, we know there are susceptible to drift to failure and things like that. So typically when I look at, you know, predicting a, a vector in the future, right? It's, it's, you know, typically done on multivariate. So you're taking the like values from different sensors, operating parameters and things like that. What happens when, you know, one of these sensors starts to drift, it gets knocked off things like that. Does it, does it, do you have influencing factors or something like that? That's driving this ROL saying, Hey, this one's way out of whack, those type of things, or how do you pick up some issues with sensors?
2: So, uh, there's some, there, there's like critical in issues with sensors, right? Where all of a sudden it just starts sending 32, 7, and only that number ever, or it just stops sending. <laughs> it's anything. a very precise so, number you picked there, Def. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah not based on any specific experience at all. That's right, um, <laughs> that's but, right. <laughs> um, you know, so there's that kind of thing, right? Which is sort of easy to detect, shows up, you know, and the system detects like the anomaly and pinpoints mm-hmm. that sensor as the problem. Um, but outside of that, you know, Drift itself, um it's not limited to sensors right it's the whole the whole system you're monitoring is is drifting right and one of the one of the i guess um the thing that makes machine learning kind of easier in the industrial space is that that drift is so much slower than it is in in like consumer centric analytics or things that are influenced by trends and fashions and fads and today's news right so you know we have you know in our plus column we have the fact that like the system is still operating right so it's got to be pretty normal and the goal of most of these systems is a stable state right where it's just you know taking raw materials adding value you know producing revenue and so it's designed not to change um so the drift tends to be very slow you know both in terms of sensor calibration and other things so some of that drift you know is Just disappears into the model right because we're not looking at absolute numbers necessarily we're looking at kind of abstracted features or shapes or things like that, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so the local normalization takes care of it. Um, But the other thing we've always done is try to put just bounds around the system, you know to say okay well anything we're going to predict like it's never open ended right you're never always in this state until all the features hit infinity. um, That you know we do try and draw a little you know bound around every. the system has so there at least someone knows right so you you know you might hit it occasionally um, and you know think of it as an anomaly you know but at some point it's going to happen more and more often and it needs some investigation and at that point you kind of know okay is this an intentional change you know like we can point you to where the changes are coming from in the data right um you know, but someone needs to assess, okay, is this is this is a real thing, this is not a real thing, does it require maintenance You're still bringing that fine. human
0: back, that person that understands the equipment?
2: Yeah. Just That'd
0: because
1: be just because this is data driven doesn't mean we spend all of our maintenance effort now on maintaining the sensors, right? Mm-hmm. We have to be more intelligent than in that. And exactly. these things will happen, as Dan is describing. Sorry, right. I intervened there, Dan.
2: Yeah. And, and also, you know, the other thing in the, is in industrial space, which is a disadvantage compared to like consumer analytics and things like that, is you don't have this feedback loop where you can test quickly. So like in a consumer analytics, when you have Drift, you can build a new model and you can test it immediately. You can A B test it. You immediately get a million examples of whether people started clicking more or not clicking more. Um, but you can never do, you know, that yeah. million tests in an hour on your industrial okay. system. Um, so it, it, it's a more, you know, like intimate problem, uh, for, for that kind of drift. Good. Yeah, that's,
0: that's great. So, um, we'll, we'll, wrap up here shortly. So, well, I'm just curious. So when, when customers are coming to you, I'm assuming, are they coming to you saying, you know, we've had this failure, we want to predict time to failure, or is it start off as more. An analytic problem in that we want to see what's going on with this equipment and then try to get to, you know, that time estimation horizon.
1: Yeah, most of the times people are coming to us with a need to improve reliability and the benefit would be either increased production or higher grade quality. Um, And in either of those cases, they have had the uh, direction to invest in instrumentation. what they have struggled with is making sense of the data from the instrumentation. Um, Sometimes we have people who would come to us and say, hey, this is all the instrumentation we have. And we have only visually been understanding the data. We haven't tried to analyze it in any sophisticated way. And then they are trying to test, is this instrumentation sufficient to give us uh, additional reliability through Falconry? Now, but they don't come to us saying, hey, I want an RUL, right? I mean, they come to us with, Let's do something to improve reliability. And RUL, as well as condition discovery, early warning, understanding root causes, these are all a part of that reliability program. And that's one of the best things about this business we are in. There are customers that are actually very well organized in their thinking about what to expect from technology.
2: Right. Yeah, and I think it, it's kind of an, a new world in a lot of these sensor things. So you, you could say you've gone as far as you can go with static factor analysis and, and manual records and maintenance records and all the correlations and things you can do there. So for a lot of people, it's the, the data-driven version of these conditions is the new thing, right? So it's like, we have the data now. Um, we have reason to believe that this data holds you know, all of the patterns in it that are relevant you know, or at least some of the right. patterns that are relevant to these operations. Um, and so, you know, it, it's sort of a natural extension of, okay, what's the, you, you know, we just want sort of the, the tool and the approach that helps us come up with the data-driven descriptions of right. the system. Um, and then that, it sort of has this interesting side effect, right, which is you have a whole new vocabulary of your system too, right? So you're not just executing program one today or, you know, building this batch of materials you actually have a system where it's like the data says it's it's warming up or it's cooling down or it's in you know it's it's doing this operation right and like the data has a different idea of what those conditions are than um, than the operators do. Um, so one of those things you know in getting used to letting the data tell you what's happening is is understanding how you know how computers see the data right or how the the sensors see your system is different than than how you think of how your system's operating.
0: That's great. And I, I, I loved your comment there. It's, it's a natural extension, right? Because what we're talking about, in, and rightfully, like I, I grew up in in industry in, in, you know, I would say the middle to tail end of industry 3.0, which kept me gangfully employed and, and you know, putting sensors on everything, right? Um, and that, that was, to me, that was really industry 3.0. We put a lot of sensing capabilities into there so much so that we just couldn't compute the data anymore, right? Um, you know, even a single sensor now is you it, it's hard to press to get like a vibration sensor now without temperature or you know even sensors themselves are becoming multivariate just by design right. Um, so I think that's great is is that this is just a, a natural extension of what we've been doing now it's also I agree that you really you need to make sure it technology is not necessarily a linear. progression it's not like you have to do this, but you still need some level of data in order to get to to the analytics part right whether that requires more sensors or not but there still needs to be some data there and there's some industries like food and Bev like there's some facilities in food and beverage that's just it's all still human driven right there's very little sensors uh, I'm generalizing there's some food and bev that, that does you know quite well and adopted industry 3.0, but there's some industries that didn't adopt industry 3 quick enough and they might be lacking behind this type of advantage with analytics.
1: Well,
2: yeah, I would just say it's that it's kind of exciting for a lot of those people because you know the, the advantage of being late to all of that is that you get to skip entire generations of technology and he, just, do you and know, that, skip it, to the. but well, the key is you can skip, you can yeah. right, and you have to have
0: foundations. Like I always say in maintenance reliability, there's no point doing analytics if you don't have the foundation to properly plan the schedule when to intervene. There's no point doing it. Just going to kick you yeah. in the butt going hey it's like a, i told you show machine right i told you this is going to fail and you did nothing about it right so there has to be that foundation but it's not linear adoption right
2: yeah, yeah and i think it would be interesting too you know because a lot of the initial round of sensing that went in was around controlled based sensing right so like of course, yeah. plc and, and scattered data um, and it's not necessarily the right data for analytics right i mean it's useful for analytics we find a lot of stuff in there but in some ways there's an advantage of like if you know what you're going to go Do is is analyze the data. You might think about it a little bit different, right? And that, you know, there's so many more different secondary sensing options now, and that the cost is structures are changing and all of that, that that you can think about it a little bit different, right? That it doesn't have to be even part of like an automation project, right? It could be Mm -hmm. be unrelated. Right,
1: uh, right. Right. Yeah. You know, the one um, philosophy we have held on to at Falconry is let's not um, push people into putting on more sensors because nobody really knows what is the full set of uh, instrumentation for any analytical problem. And so let's see how far we can go with the data they currently have. And all of that basically leads us to this sort of state in the future where your reliability is going to be a function of the software you can apply to it. Of course, instrumentation, no doubt about that. But because it is not a final state, it is always a work in progress, you need something that is dynamic and fungible. And I think software plays that role. So I have nothing against uh, sensor makers. In fact, we collaborate with quite a few of them because that's how we move closer and closer to the goal that Dan is suggesting, the secondary sensing. But uh, sensing without having software that is pliable enough that it can answer your every different question from an operational sense becomes very difficult to produce results i don't think that secondary sensing alone can solve it either
0: right i agree and so we'll wrap it up here and and as I'm thinking and i've, I've taken away a lot you know and and I'm, i think i'm changing my mind a little bit on this remaining useful life or time to failure and one thing that you said earlier on this podcast is is the event horizon estimation is is not just for that f curve on the on the pdf curve if you will right and really where i think you can have some really good applications is there, there could be um i'll give you an example this i'm not sure if i quite thought this out in my head yet but um you know filter changes and things like that so typically we monitor differential pressure but there's other factors right we know cavitation is bad in a pump right a lot of things when it happens in cavitation we operate at you know the, the incorrect speed or filters are clogged causing air in there and things like that so we could start using the EHE to detect things that happened further back in that PDF curve, like clog filters mm-hmm. and things like that. So, the mm-hmm. holy grail is not, I said the holy grail is, you know, when this asset going to fail, but the whole point of really maintenance, and this is where we've been trying to shift it for the last 50 years, is not a cost center, it's trying to avoid failure, right? Right. So is there things in that event horizon estimation that we can start to predict that are going to influence the failure right so filter changes yeah. when things that is, yeah. that it's is very
2: very
1: that's right it's a journey not the end
2: that's right yeah in some cases okay. it's not even a failure right it's just an operational efficiency right so we have one really interesting use case now right which is there's a you know there's a thing that people need to do that takes a you know a fair amount of time and if it fails they need to redo it and so what they want is just something where it's like usually the reason it fails is kind of a false positive region where they just didn't wait for the system to settle long enough you know so there's simple things like hey we could avoid a ton of rework if we could just build a system that told us how long it's going to be until the system settled enough to do this test um, interesting you know, so it's, it's yeah not, not a failure condition but it, it it's in that efficiency you know realm yeah
0: it's interesting of all the applications i've been through 20 years of maintenance reliability, I can, I, I can just start listing them off of potential. And I'm sure all our listeners are like, okay. So why don't we, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, well, if we can just do a quick overview, this is your chance to, to highlight, uh highlight Falconry. W- what is Falconry? Where did you come from? How did you start? How do, how do people get in touch with you? All that good stuff.
1: Yeah. So, um, so I'm Nikunj Med. I'm the founder and CEO of Falconry. The company Falconry started in 2012, just eight years ago. And uh, we are headquartered in Silicon Valley, and we have a regional headquarters in India. And we serve practically customers all over the world, northern and southern hemisphere. Um, Falconry as a company is venture-backed, and we have a number of uh, very strong industrial players who are stakeholders in the company, including Siemens and Fortive, as well as uh, Sumitomo of Japan. Uh, Falconry's primary business is in making available operational AI products so that maintenance and reliability professionals can improve uh, the state of their operations and its reliability. And we work in a number of different industries, all the way from metals and mining to chemicals and semiconductors, and from automotive and transportation to defense and intelligence. Uh, one of the new things that has happened to Falconry this year is we got selected by the Department of Defense for a major strategic application of operational AI to improve defense readiness and to improve intelligence uh, of the operations themselves. Um, you can get in touch with us, writing us at infofalconry.com, at or you could go to our website, falconry.com. And there's a ton of information there about use cases, the products that we make available. The method that falconry applies in terms of understanding early warnings and estimates of time and our blog is a very active source of know how about how people are applying falconry to a variety of different scenarios.
0: Excellent well well, thank you, gentlemen, I appreciate this I appreciate you taking time out of your morning Uh, i'll be very candid this was a very natural conversation it's one that I think we could just carry on probably for. A few more hours as we dive a little deeper. So I, I feel a part two coming up uh uh pretty soon here. Uh and Dan, thank yeah. you for for sharing your experience.
1: That's yeah, the upside
0: of so the so
2: Saturdays. So... We we don't have our work and marketing hats on as tight as That's right. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> that was for sure. Well well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Um and we'll we'll have you on again. Thank you.
2: Yeah, That's thanks, pleasure. For thanks Blair.